Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. I have Matt Lasky joining me today from the Equity family of companies out of Ohio. They are focused on retail and healthcare properties across the country. They operate in many markets. Matt and I met over Twitter and have become friends over the last few months. He's been an incredible resource for information. I think you'll really enjoy today's episode. Matt, thank you for joining me today. One, it's been great to get to know you through the Twitter universe and being able to text and communicate with you. You've been a huge resource of information for me. And so thank you for that. Oh, it's been great to connect as well. And likewise, always helpful to, uh, to bounce notes off other operators. For sure. Well, why don't we just get started with a little bit of your background uh, and your kind of story and career, and then we'll we'll get more into how that translates to what we're seeing today. Sure. So I'll give you the, uh, the the quick overview, but uh, went to college at Miami of Ohio, ended up studying finance because I wanted to come out of school with a uh, lot of tangible skill set and always liked numbers. I uh, minored in business analytics, which is really a uh, statistics type background. Uh, I was fortunate enough, worked pretty hard in school, did well. And my school was a big investment banking school, so they, they wanted me to go to investment banking. Even though I grew up in Chicago, I really didn't want to go to New York or out work those high banking hours or certainly not for somebody else. So I was, I was kind of enamored looking at the Forbes list. Yeah, there was there seemed to be a common denominator of a lot of people who made a lot of money in real estate. And the other common denominators were you know, being a tight industry or a tech pioneer, and I didn't think I was either of those things. So Real estate always kind of stood out to me, and I like the architectural significance too. And you know, quick anecdote is my mom, the first condo she ever bought in Chicago, she held, and you know, so I would just see a rent check show up every month, and I was like, man, real estate is a great way to do nothing and uh, make some money. Little yeah. little do I know now, uh, <laughs> especially in uh, in today's world, but. We, we can get into that. So I came out of school and took my first job at Marcus and Millichap um, in the brokerage coming straight out of school. And it was, uh, it was super formative. They really taught me how to sell and cold call. So I was, you know, that guy making 200 to 300 cold calls a week coming out of school, trying, trying to sell and, you know, learn, learn to be fearless and kind of how to reach out to people and build relationships. And then I ended up moving to Columbus um, because my girlfriend at the time, but now wife, took a job there. And so that kind of brought me to Columbus, Ohio, which is now home. And then uh, then over to equity because I was interested in focusing on the healthcare side of real estate and uh, kind of the rest is history. What year were you at Marcus Milchap? So I started in 2011. Okay. You moved to Columbus, and uh, were you doing healthcare real estate at Marcus, or was that kind of a pivot for you once you got to Equity? Yeah, so that was a pivot, and Equity had a um, a recruiter, and kind of the cliff notes on Equity is the company was founded in 1989, full-service real estate company, so we have asset management, construction development, property management, and we own stuff for our own accord. And they're the two core competencies have always been healthcare and healthcare to offices primarily off campus medical office buildings with some on campus and some seniors housing and then retail and retail used to be call it big box, junior box, Walmart or grocery anchored centers. And now it's smaller service oriented retail. But what drew me to equity and so when I was at Marcus, I was doing retail. Um, and single tenant net lease type stuff. And the healthcare side of things really intrigued me. And that's what drew me to equity. What, what about uh, healthcare um, intrigued you and, and kind of brought you in besides the enormous opportunity kind of in front of us with the boomer generation and everything? So a lot of it was that there's just undeniable kind of macro tailwinds and that 
the country needs more health care, right? Anyway, you slice it. It's non-discretionary in a lot of cases. And then it was complicated. So I was kind of intrigued by the, the intellectual side of healthcare real estate in that, you know, it's a little more complicated than um, some of the other types when, when you get into things like reimbursements and compliance um, with hospital systems and doctors and, and things like that. So it was uh, a little more nuanced and kind of a, an interesting challenge with a lot of growth. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So in your world today, you kind of, I, I would say, wear two hats. You're on the service side of the business and you're also on the principal owner side of the business. Kind of what is... Uh, your world look like from that perspective? What do you focus on on, on either side? Sure. So on, on the service side, my partner Patrick and I, and he's also a partner in, in the fund company. So kind of what I left out of the equity story is founded and family owned and, and Patrick is my business partner and son of the founder. On the service side, we oversee and help location-based healthcare companies, and they're typically non-hospital location-based healthcare companies, so things physical therapists, urgent cares, dentists, autism centers, ophthalmologists, things of that nature. Um, to the tune of our, our client portfolio makes up about 700 locations on that side. For, for scope, last year we transacted in 25 states, did about 75 deals. So that uh, keeps us busy, but we've got a, a great team of a handful of guys under us who uh, are out there helping us operate and make them the day to day. But we five or six year run really building out that platform and building a, an awesome team around us. And then on the fund side, so equity made an intentional shift a handful of years ago. It's kind of the private equity fund was the one thing we were missing. So historically, it's just indicator. Equity had partners everywhere from high net worth individuals, kind of country club, past the hat money, to institutional JV partners, REITs, private equity funds, et cetera. And we just wanted to be able to have flexible capital to move quickly and take advantage of some pricing opportunities. And you know, from an operator standpoint, it's just one less moving part if you have a discretionary fund. So we you know, we raised a, a fund around, you know, a set mandate to have that capital. And, you know, that's one less moving part when we put a deal under contract. You don't have to execute on the equity and the debt. You just have to execute on the debt and do the due diligence, which helps. So we landed on private equity on that side. Um, the family looked, you know, since maybe about a decade ago at, do we want to do an upread or some sort of read or public vehicle? But we kind of have this mishmash of partnerships and then projects, everything from seven or 8,000 square foot retail to 300,000 square foot medical office buildings. So kind of not the best vehicle uh, to roll up for a public market. So we landed on uh, private equity funds to kind of consolidate ownership there. And then another trend we had is from call it equities inception 30 years ago to today, Healthcare projects have grown immensely in size. So, what might have been a typical medical office project 30 years ago was a three or four million dollar project. Today, it's a 30 or 40 million dollar project. We don't want to leave some of our investors who have kind of been friendly at family at this point of the firm behind. And we we're seeing that, you know, you'd have to write a five or six million dollar equity check for a development in the modern era. And that's you know, maybe not the best asset allocation for some of the high net worth investors that used to be with us. So they were getting kind of moved aside um, for bigger institutional money. And so a fund was a way to keep giving them that exposure that they had had the last 30 years while, while allowing us to continue to execute on projects. Is it 30 or 40 uh, million today just because costs have gone up or because the scope of the the requirement and, and regulation and government is created just bigger checklist of things that have to get done in order to build these? I would say it's mostly the latter. Um, you used to have a lot of private physician groups where they would go build a you know, seven or 10,000 square foot building and now groups want big, large floor plates and there's consolidation from hospital systems buying up independent positions and that's for a whole host of usually back office issues, right, where cost of insurance and compliance, be it electronic medical records or a whole host of just 
um, operational challenges that doctors are facing. You know, the hospital systems have that bulk pricing power and the brand name. Um, so doctors are they're getting acquired um, in a lot of the markets we're in by by systems, and then the systems want to have multiple specialties um, with something that's driving traffic, like an urgent care or primary care, um, to feed to their ancillary services. So that just creates a bigger footprint. And, and that's really just due to the sophistication of the healthcare systems um, and groups over the last few decades. How does a deal in that space come together? Are you talking directly to like a national chain of uh, ophthalmologist offices, or are you targeting an ophthalmologist in one market and trying to build a deal around them? Or like, how do these deals kind of get put together? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's a handful of ways. So our last couple of funds have been primarily acquisition focused, but we've had a we have an active development arm and a and a pretty you know critical distinction is our fund company doesn't fund hundred percent of our projects and that has to do with a whole host of call it risk uh, risk management, right? So we're not gonna do a fund that's all development in one city because then you don't get the diversification. So equity is still doing syndicated deals outside of equity velocity funds. And so our development officers are it usually talking to um, some sort of anchor tenant, be it a primary care or a hospital system in area, and we're building projects around that. It's kind of, hey, do you want to expand this footprint or where do you want to go? We kind of have a saying that we do we do users, not sites. But with that said, a few times there's just really good pieces of land that come available and we try to build a project around that. But we uh we're a little different maybe than some developers in that we usually only close on the land and move a project forward if we're 50 to 70% pre-lease, depending on the project. So we're not in the speculative land business or spec buying land and sitting on it and seeing what will happen. We're you know, contractually halfway there um, yeah. before we pull the trigger on the land. And y'all are in many of the major markets around the country in both retail and healthcare, right? Yeah, so we're we're headquartered in suburb of Columbus, Ohio. Have offices in Cincinnati and Dayton, in Ohio. Um, a handful in Florida, with kind of a regional headquarters in Tampa. Um, one in Charleston, South Carolina, and then Austin, Texas, and San Antonio, Texas. So our founder went to OSU here, never left, and then uh, decided that. You know, along the way, that that growth as a developer is a lot more exciting, and so Tampa came next, and then Texas was after that. So we're uh, we're opportunistic in where we go, but there is a strong focus on Midwest to Southeast plus Texas. Yep. In your fund, is the allocate is is the, is it a generalist fund from the standpoint of uh, you're putting money in healthcare, retail, and mixed use properties all within the same fund, or does each have its own mandate? Yeah, so I'll break I'll break that down um, by fund. Our our first fund was um, about sixty forty healthcare to retail. The mandate was basically a, an IRR uh, return driven. So we were we're trying to do a fifteen percent plus net to investor IRR. So after all fund fees and carry, um, and it was kind of a go anywhere as long as it's somewhat cash flowing retail and healthcare. Um, so that was the first fund we had. We had seven assets in four states and five different MSAs. So we had uh, a couple deals in Ohio that were in different MSAs. And we, we did our fund a little different since we weren't all uh, traditional finance guys. We were real estate operators. We raised and deployed our fund within a year. Um, so we kind of raised our first handful of dollars and then started putting it out. And, and we just kind of treated it like, it was our money, so it's co-investors and in all our funds. We we don't want money sitting around. So if you have some groups raise funds for one to two years and then deploy it in one to three years, so it could be a four or five year gap from when you commit to your last dollar being called, and we don't want to do that. So a little bit smaller, and uh, and we kept them small, toss intentionally because we wanted to make sure we were doing it right and kind of taking baby steps before we we're in a full on sprint. So that was the first fund. And a lot of this was driven by investor sentiment, but our retail projects were outperforming 
the healthcare and and maybe riskier, so they should be. But the the investors um, kind of independently kept saying, "We really like healthcare. You know, we come to you guys for healthcare. We think retail scary, and we've had this internal term for for five or six years now. And we would call the Amazon test, and we weren't that public about it. But in all our investment meetings, we were talking about, you know, can this be impacted by the internet? So we kind of just use the Amazon test as a proxy for." You know, can this go online or be shaken up by e-commerce? And so we've been buying focus on service-oriented retail um, for the last five or six years, which up until call it two months ago was a great idea. And and now we're we're living we're living through those decisions. But you know, a lot of gyms, a lot of restaurants, um, and not a lot of e-commerce exposure. So we deployed our our last fund, and that was. All but one asset was healthcare, and, and our mandate was a dual mandate. But the investors kept saying, "Hey, we want healthcare. We want healthcare." And so um, we focus more on healthcare, and then the current fund that we're raising and deploying is exclusively healthcare. So we're uh, we're leaning more in that direction and kind of just syndicating out those opportunistic retail deals um, at this point. Yeah. Well, let's just use that as a segue uh, into today, and we can just start with. Uh, retail, uh, retail, and and hotels have grabbed the majority of headlines uh, thus far into this kind of new world that we're living in. But from from the front lines, what are you seeing in in retail that you can share? Sure. So I'll say, you know, our portfolio is a little bit more reflective of limited junior box exposure, and a lot of our junior box exposure is to dollar stores, and they've been great. And are still open for business um, because they're a kind of a grocery proxy in the markets we have them in. They're really tertiary markets where the Dollar Tree or Family Dollar serves as um, a convenience store or grocery for some of um, the population. We are seeing, you know, as I think we have about 180 tenants in our portfolio, and the national retailers hopped. All over this. I mean, they were the first to send letters saying, you know, citing a force majeure clause that may or may not be applicable and basically saying, hey, we're not going to pay you. And, and they moved much quicker than everybody else. Um, for kind of perspective and as a data point on this call, we're blended about 67 or 68% of April rents have been paid. And on that, I'd say, you know, healthcare is probably tracking in the low 70s, whereas retail is tracking in the low 60s. Um, and that, but that's dollar weighted, right? So if you think about a typical healthcare asset that we're buying, we usually have an anchor tenant that's tied to some credit. So, you know, a lot of those guys paid, uh, which is good, but some of the smaller guys are struggling. So, so taking that back to retail, the uh, everyone, Everyone there struggling. You know, we we actually like the thesis of having retail tenants whose decision is made at the dinner table and not the boardroom. And that's kind of our, our way of saying, you know, we, we like supporting and having local businesses or tenants where it's an entrepreneur who's really invested and that's what they do for a livelihood. And they make that decision with their husband or wife at the dinner table because those people tend to work hard and, and be great, but they're just you know, in in most of our portfolio right now, they're they're really hamstrung by some sort of shelter in place, and so we're, you know, that's flowing uphill to us. We're trying to work with our lenders to get forbearance and rent payments to pass that back to them. So hopefully, uh, when this this gets done, we can kind of restart and you know not lose a bunch of tenants in the meantime. Are and and you kind of answered, but lenders uh, for the most part that you're dealing with have been. You know, have had a different attitude towards things than maybe they did in 08 and 09. They've been a lot more forgiving and willing to work with y'all. Yeah, I would say that's a, that's a key distinction. This go around is we have not really hit a wall with any of our lenders. So we have 63 assets, um, not 63 individual lending relationships, but definitely a lot. And everyone has, if we can show need and show that tenants have, uh, had requested relief. Everyone's working with us, which has been in stark contrast to call it 0809. It was a lot of polite hangups or rhetoric around, you know, essentially good luck, figure it out, but not my problem. And in this go around, 
they're treating us much like we're treating our investors, realizing that it really is a partnership. And the best way through it is uh, is to work with us and that we're acting in good faith. And if they do too, you know, we should all be able to minimize loss together. But, you know, kind of loan documents and leases seem to have gone out the window for the most part. And it's everyone um, trying to act in good faith and, and do its right to come out the back end. Yep. Any best practices or just how y'all are handling uh, rent relief or rent abatement? Just like a survey proving that they've applied for government stimulus. Is there like how do y'all go about it? Yep. So we had we had some learnings in oh eight oh nine where um, certain groups requested relief that probably didn't need it. So yeah, we have a one page questionnaire, two page questionnaire that that asks you know what type of reason relief have you applied for? It's a questionnaire, basically, what's going on in your business? How bad is revenue? Um, what what have you done on, on your end to try to solve this? And then, you know, basically, what's your ask? Um, we're trying to, to use this to get you know, good financial clarity, which always helps as a tenant or as a landlord coming out the back end. And not all our leases require financials. And so if we can get some data, albeit some of its short-term impairment, but to see how things were before that, that's a helpful data point for us. And then also not just having a, we don't really have a standard, you know, here's 60 or 90 days forbearance. Um, We're trying to work case by case. So if groups are up in a year or two, you know, we're trying to get some term to extend the lease tactfully we're not certainly not trying to aggressively kind of hold anyone over the proverbial barrel but realizing that you know in a lot of these cases we're going to be floating their expenses or you know them getting rent relief is actually going to eat into our profitability and so if we're going to bear that trying to get some sort of win in stability or something on the back end for sure now it's you know the landlord's been put in a situation that they're like kind of part of the stimulus package for now and until there's some you know something that gives landlords a little more comfort like you said at some point there's only so much that we can do before we're out of business as well too i agree and you know we i think we've done a decent job educating all our tenants on we've got a great damn team who's who's worked hard on that but the in the states that escalated quickly, and so Ohio, um, our governor has been kind of a week or so behind, call it a New York or LA. So he was uh, he got ahead of it, but uh, somehow, uh, thanks to our our big media friends, the the general consensus is kind of like you said that we were part of the stimulus package and that rent was optional, which um, yeah, there were some talks about, but everyone kind of landlords read it how they wanted to read it, which was it's not optional, and tenants read it how they wanted to read it, which is it is optional. And we're trying to politely let everyone know that no, your your rent still do. Um but with that said, you know, we'll we'll try to work with you. Um but it's been a an interesting and trying time and thankfully all our lenders are you know telling us that hey you can work to modify things and we're not going to default you, right? And so we don't have of our 63 assets, one is a CMBS loan where the rules are a little bit different, but thankfully we have a lot of bank debt and with that comes an easier focus talking to a human. Um, so we're not triggering recourse clauses and uh, immediately putting ourselves in default because our, our lending partners are, are able to work with us who can work with the tenant. Can you speak to that for just a second? I haven't been able to ask anybody this, but you just brought up a really good point. What is the difference if you're borrowing from CMBS versus a, a bank? Uh, what are the challenges that somebody faces? Sure. So, I mean, the devil's in the details, right? And no, no two deals are necessarily the same, but a lot of loan docs call for, especially on the CMBS side, where you can't make any major material modifications without lender consent. And you can imagine that lender consent is pretty tough to get these days, just based on the sheer volume of requests. So, you know, theoretically, if you had a CMBS deal and you modified a minority tenant's lease to just give them abatement, right? They could claim that's material, and you can all of a sudden trigger loan backs or recourse. And and so that, yeah, uh, I doubt the CMBS guys are going to hold you to that, but who knows? Um, if they wanted to, they, they could. And so. 
Um, it's just, it's one less thing to worry about. You know, we had calls with the higher ups at all the banks and we're like, Hey, you know, and some of our bank documents do say that too, but they were kind of like, no, you know, we trust you. You're a good operator. You guys been around 32 years and we've never given anything back to the bank. So they're like, keep doing what you do. And you know, we'll, we'll help you figure it out. So kind of having them put the documents aside too and trust us to do the right thing goes a long way in committing resources to, to really fixing the issue and not getting caught down in the legalese. And if you're communicating on a CMBS, is it, are you assigned a, a banker? Is it often somebody like you don't really know, so there's no relationship there? Or are you talking to a computer and just, you know, typing stuff in? Yeah, so and I, I don't actually handle the asset. Um, that's our CMBS deal, but I know we've um, we've been we've had a couple different people, but it is it's much more of a, a nameless, faceless relationship than call it the regional bank who holds forty million of debt with you. That's interesting. Um, maybe one more question on retail, and I know it's only been thirty days, and so, but is there anything? not even related to your assets specifically, but just retail in general, is there anything that's kind of permanently that you foresee being kind of permanently damaged going forward or will things kind of, are you betting that things get back to normal for most type of retailers or is this kind of the final, I don't want to say nail in the coffin for some groups, but when you mentioned the Amazon rule, now you kind of have the, the COVID rule. It, it sure puts a squeeze on things. Yeah, I uh, I would say maybe the best way I heard it put was that it's it's help, helping accelerate trends that were already in place. So in in some of the centers where it was a struggling, call it soft goods retailer that is impacted by Amazon with a heavy debt burden. Yeah, I don't know how all those guys make it out of this. Call it with three months of no revenue. Now I looking at a piece of data that a wealth management shop put out. And I think it was the average, uh, the average S and P company only had like one month of cash on hand to cover all their obligations. They had no revenue. Right. So a lot of those publicly traded retailers who have been, have been hit hard and are going to have a handful of months of no revenue and large debt burdens are, uh, are you know, going to be in trouble. Like JC Penny today announced that you know, make their interest payment in April. And a lot of these guys, it's not, it's not a surprise. You know, people have seen it coming. It's just, it's going to accelerate maybe a bunch of them at once. And what I'll be curious to see is, you know, a lot of service oriented retail and our stuff included has been propped up by restaurants. And while those guys are still doing carry out in a lot of cases, their volumes are nowhere near what they used to be. And so, in the restaurant industry where there's already a high failure rate and low margin, I'll be curious to see kind of how the national and mom and pops recover coming out of that. And if there is a, is a bifurcation of the two, you know, if the nationals have the same power or, you know, if, uh, uh, if they just had too much overhead and too much of a machine to restart versus call it your, your entrepreneur with, you know, one or a handful of restaurants. Right. And then as it relates to kind of healthcare and the stuff that you do in that space, obviously the the macro trends of one, humans are going to continue needing healthcare and there's a generation that gets older by the day. Uh, do you kind of see this as kind of a blip on the radar, just given the macro trends behind the, the situation? Or is there anything there that kind of uh, worries you going forward? Another good question. I think the answer is both. And so one of our, our biggest struggles in all this early on, you know, uh, healthcare real estate was a darling asset class in 08, 09. There were very few tenant defaults, a lot of on-time payments because doctors can out-earn problems in a lot of cases. It, this time around, I would say it's different. So if I switch back to our service side um, of the company, we represent one of the largest eye practices in the country. It's about a $200 million business and their traffic has fallen to about 10 to 15% of what they saw the months prior. And so that's ophthalmology. They're basically only doing things that are need-based, but you know, that's a $200 million business with a big time cash crunch. And, and so an interesting distinction to draw in 
uh, healthcare versus retailers. Retail's accounts receivable cycle is basically, you know, on demand, right? You buy a good and they get paid, or you buy a meal and they get paid. But in healthcare, they're reimbursing through insurance, so you know they've got a sixty to one hundred twenty day lag time. So all the healthcare practices are still receiving cash from things they did in call it January, February, and so they're. Their cash crunch hasn't really happened yet because it'll manifest itself, you know, with the patients they see now in a lot of businesses and call it 60 to 90 days. So summer, early fall, they'll be looking for that revenue. So the six, you know, the, the good CFOs are trying to manage cash through that. We were surprised to hear so we represent the largest urgent care group in Ohio. And we thought, hey, you know, this is a this is a pandemic. Um, people are still getting sick. How are you doing? And they, they were one of the first groups that had COVID testing in our state and their volumes are crushed. They're like, people don't want to come in if they have sniffles or maybe the flu because everyone's afraid of getting sick and getting COVID. So unless they think they have COVID, you know, they're staying in. And so that's, and our PT clients are closed and so are our autism clients. So healthcare that's non-essential is taking a huge hit right now. But with that said, you know, I, I do think it comes back. We're definitely going to need it on the back end. It's just how long does this last and, and what do we do with our obligations and liabilities in the meantime? Yep. Wow. That's a, that's really, you painted the picture well. I didn't, I didn't even think about the, the accounts receivable. So they're actually doing, in theory, they're, from a cash flow perspective, they're, they're doing well through this, but they're going to, they're a delayed reaction. So as everybody's ramping back up there, the, that's when they start slowing down. Yep. And so I've been on a number of calls with clients where, you know, we're saying, Hey, we need rent relief, um, on the service side. And they're like, can you show need? And they see a balance sheet with millions of dollars of cash on hand. Um, and then you have the CFO explain, Hey, that's, you know, we're, we're paying you money today for stuff we did in January, right? So we can either repay you today and maybe not be a business in a handful of months, or we can preserve cash and kind of figure it out as we go. But we're not making money right now. It just, it hasn't manifested itself yet. Has there been any talk in the industry about insurers uh, paying receivables much quicker in order to kind of bridge this gap or nobody knows? That's not something that we've uh, we've been a part of. I don't know if, if our clients on that side have have pushed on that, but but it does seem like it kind of a theme of every conversation we have, no matter with who is everyone, you know, cash is king. And so, you know, whether whether it's us talking to a lender or a tenant talking to us, everyone is uh, is trying to hold cash until there's some clarity. For sure. Did you go into this uh, with anything kind of under contract to buy or anything kind of in pre-development that maybe wasn't fully approved yet and uh, how y'all are looking at that? Yeah. Uh, so we are under contract on a project in um, West Texas. So we've got a couple things going on, right? COVID and oil. Um, it's healthcare deal. We, But it's anchored by a couple health systems. I just got a uh, update from ownership yesterday, and he collected 92% of April rents. So great collections. That you know, speaks probably to the quality of the asset. I think we'll we'll still proceed. Um, we've seen a huge freeze in the credit markets for anything that's not. You know, I think lenders are really doing just home run. You know, call it like single tenant build this year, or you know, 100% pre leased with brand name credit type deals and with uh, you know, spreads that maybe are, from a borrower standpoint, a little bit punitive to what they were just a month ago. A lot of the balance sheets and stuff haven't changed. Did have a call with a lender today who said, hey, look, like we love the hospital credit, but a lot of these hospitals have drawn down on all their revolvers. So, you know, uh, as soon as this hit, a lot of people learned from 08 that you're credit lines might freeze up even if they say they're good. So everybody drew them down. But now, whether you need it or not, people drew that money down. And you know, some of the hospital systems are starting to get 
punished for that by some of the lenders or, or the borrowers, maybe more so by bigger spreads. But it's because supply and demand for loans have kind of altered. So the few lenders that are still active are kind of naming their LTV and spread. And you know, our our take on that is we've got we'd rather try to work with a seller and prolong an extra call it forty five to sixty days if we can and you know get get some clarity and not you know not take good debt just because of a month of impatience. So we'd 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 rather not do the deal or you know just wait and and get realistic terms. You know our, our original debt quotes uh, on that project were sub three percent or around four percent, depending on what our lender was, with call it sixty five to seventy percent leverage, and you know that's tipped up about a hundred basis points today, and not a lot has changed in terms of the risk of the asset other than the pandemic. And so we'd rather wait, be able to say, hey, look, all the tenants are still there. They're all open for business and doing fine. Let's go back to those old spreads. Yep. If a deal walked in your office today or tomorrow, like what what boxes need to be checked for y'all to try and even move forward on something right now? Or is the answer just we're pressing pause for a couple months? So I would say, yeah, I'd say depending on, we'd want to have a conversation with the seller um, first and foremost and say, look, you know, one of the things we've observed is in the real estate market, you know, there's, you know, there's like a full-blown cycle in the stock market, but it seems like real estate prices didn't change over the past month. Maybe that's reasonable, but to say, look, if we're interested around this pricing, you're going to have to work with us on timing because if we can't can't kind of structure the capital optimally, and, and by the way, make sure all the tenants are going to reopen and stuff. So one of our uh, must-dos on all our acquisitions are we do in-person tenant interviews with all the anchors and anybody with lease role in two to three years, if not the whole building. And so we can't do that from home. We want to do that face-to-face um, for a host of reasons. And so until you know we can get that level of comfort, we can't transact. But with that said, we're, we're still looking at deals and we're willing to commit, call it staff resources for the right deal in in doing what we can do from here. So the legal work, lease abstracts, tying out all the financials, basically everything we can do from home or remote. Um, we're willing to work in good faith for the right deal. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not seeing really any sort of real estate distress yet. Um, we are talking to our LPs about, hey, we think that some of the owners here, you know, if you think about some of our retail and the fragmentation of the ownership in the retail industry, so most our healthcare, it's us and other institutions, be it private equity firms, developers that are JV'd with private equity firms or REITs. Um, but our retail, we buy a lot from high net worth individuals, and there could be some scenarios in retail where the restaurants don't open. The uh, the mortgage forbearance runs off, and you know banks are left with a fifty to seventy percent lease building in a retail market that was already softening prior to all this. And, and we'd like to be, you know, we'd like to be that buyer if we can come back and buy eight to ten k deals like you could in two thousand twelve or in eleven. We're interested in that again, so we're talking to some of our LPs about distressed retail, which we really think. It's kind of a uh, maybe a proxy bet on the American dream. If we still think there's going to be entrepreneurial people selling stuff in America, then that's a lot of the retail we buy. So, you know, if you like America, um, we like that idea. But with that said, we think, you know, there's going to be, we don't think the country reopens and kind of whenever it does in two to three months and, and we're back to normal. We think there's going to be a lot more stress in the system than that. It's just, it's tough to get to all the second and third order effects, but we're not of the opinion kind of as a group that it just opens and, and it's normal again. Yep. What are, what are y'all thinking about the rest of 2020 and kind of 2021? You know, when do we find kind of like the new normal? Cause I don't think we're ever going back to where we were. Well, I don't, maybe y'all do 30, 30, 60 days ago. Um, but what's y'all's forecast for some type of normalcy again? 
people are traveling, people are okay, you know, going on a vacation, eating in a restaurant, uh, you know, without a mask on their face and freaked out about everybody walking near them. Um, do y'all have any kind of horizon for that? I would say no. Um, I mean, some of the things we're concerned about, which I think you kind of alluded to, is right, we're a consumer driven economy with 20 to 25% of jobs being in retail or hospitality. And we don't know if those all come back, right? And then um, you touched on restaurants, which I think is really interesting because, um, you know, their business models don't work with social distancing. Right. So if we're afraid to not sit to where you can touch the table next door, then these restaurants aren't paying for your 50 bucks a foot in trendy downtown areas because you just, it's just economically not feasible. So, you know, there's a risk of that. Yeah. Historically, we've been really good as a country of spending up to our means and then some and, you know, taking on leverage. So, but with that said, you know, there was some paralysis coming out of 08 where people stopped living to the edge, I think, you know, we might see that again. So spend will be down. And so we don't really have kind of a, a crystal ball or a good idea. I would say that, yeah, if you look at all kind of past pandemics that were this contagious, there's a real risk of having another flare up where we reopen and then a bunch of people get it again. Um, and how we'll deal with that, I don't know. But, you know, if you just kind of, just play the odds if, if it's as, as infectious as um, everyone thought. I mean, New York is maybe the best example where, you know, they lead the world in number of people per capita that got it because they worked in close proximity. Um, the fact that we think we might just be able to eradicate this, I think we just, we slow the spread and hopefully have, you know, a healthcare system that's on its feet and ready to, uh, to not get bombarded if there's a phase two wave, but with that said, you know, none of us are really epidemiologists, but we're just kind of, I don't know, until much more time has passed, I don't think we're ready to, uh, to just believe that, that we're past and would rather, you know, proceed cautiously than kind of proceed with reckless abandon. Yep. Are y'all seeing, obviously the, the transaction world has come to a halt. Are y'all seeing any leasing activity of any kind in, uh, in your portfolio, uh, new leases, not renewals, but anything new? No, I would say it's limited. Um, across the board, we are working on a couple healthcare assets uh, where where there are some new new deals in process at play and, and new meaning not signed leases and people building out, but actual prospects looking to, to do a location, which is great. I would say on the service side of the business, a couple of our clients, a uh, substance abuse therapy group, and our autism clients are actually still moving real fast, and the PT guys a little bit too, but everyone is handling it a little bit differently. Like the PT group is teeing up a bunch of deals, but won't sign until there's kind of transparency on when we reopen. So everyone wants to reopen, thinks they have a business that you know is going to be great, but they obviously have different cash needs. You know, let's let's say we're optimistic and we reopen in May, which by the way, I don't think we are. But if you know, if it's a May first restart date, that's different than a July first start date from a cash need basis. And you know, cash gets either allocated to what you currently have or new growth and you know, new growth gets put on the back burner in a time like this. So there is some activity. We'll see. One of our favorite stories in LA because of blockbusters failures in like 2011 or 12, we did a huge urgent care portfolio deal with like 20 former blockbusters in the same landlord where you're able to take a bunch of good real estate all at once. So that was kind of a, an awesome transaction to be a part of. I don't know if you'll see something like that, with like a, a mattress firm or a restaurant chain or something where a bunch of good real estate that's consolidated shakes loose. But you know, our healthcare clients are do like that retail kind of presence. And if retail gets hit hard and rents come back, then you can be in a retail setting for the same cost as a medical office building, but you get better visibility and access. So you kind of get some marketing in there with your real estate, the same cost. Interesting. My clients are interested in that. 
And I'm assuming you're seeing no activity in retail. Yep, that's uh, that's a pretty good assumption. We're you know we're renewing groups, working through kind of the issues. Um, at least to this point, credit to our tenants, no one is really said and thrown in the towel. We're all we're working towards solutions to come out of this with everyone, but there's uh, there's been no no new activity. I just have to imagine the amount of sublease and vacancy that will come out of retail. And to your point, social distancing with restaurants doesn't work. Uh, rents come down. You know, you could see retail rents get set back, you know, a decade or more in some areas, um, maybe never come back to, to where they were unless you start seeing kind of a new form of retailer, you know, that, that can make a lot of a lot more hay out of the same space than they were before. Is that is that kind of what you're thinking? Or you think it's for some locations it bounces back quick or is it going to be a pretty big setback? Yeah, I think it'll be I think there'll definitely be a setback and I'm maybe drawn on my time. When I was doing retail at Marcus, you would see a ton of oh six, oh seven deals um where rent just you know, got reset of some sort of build the suit or new development. And then because of supply dynamics, there was just so much more supply for the vacancy that, you know, that $40 top of market rent all of a sudden was 25 or 30, which puts a lot of landlords underwater. I think the experiential class A, like malls will come back. So we don't own any malls, but, you know, I'm, I think retail will be okay outside of those. Like Class B and C malls, I think you know this. This could be one of the death knells. They were they were dying, kind of coming into this, and now um, they've got a bunch of struggling tenants. And if if you're a big retail tenant, you think you're going to be viable going forward, you're going to trim your least profitable areas first, which tend to be the the non-experiential malls. But I also think you'll you know you'll get the same the same setback. I mean, we haven't really addressed them, addressed, you know, unemployment levels and rates of change that rival the Great Depression, but that's that's real. And so you know, I don't know if these flagship retailers that are call it on Michigan Avenue in Chicago or Fifth Avenue in New York type of things, if, you know, if they're still going to be splitting, call it three or four figure triple net rents with where we are in a consumer cycle. Yep. Four figure triple net rents. God, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that was, yeah. Your I lease rate is $1,000 a foot. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, they call it a marketing budget, but I think that's just because you can't make money. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter how much you sell. <laughs> Maybe one more question. If you, do you have any kind of contrarian views of kind of anything, whether it be business, real estate, personal? That if 18 months from now, uh, we were just kind of looking in hindsight, some things that we might see that others might find interesting? So it looks really bad now. And I think 18 months might be too quick, but we for the last couple of years have been big, um, big proponents of service-oriented retail. And so call it eight to 15,000 square foot, square foot deals where you know, it's fitness and a restaurant type of thing, which, yeah, that's not working out so well right now. But I do think that America's going to eventually want to dine out and be, uh, be fit again. And, and it's good real estate. So if you, if you buy it at the right basis with a reasonable rent, sometimes that becomes an office. Sometimes it becomes medical. Um, I think the, the flexibility of the real estate, if the basis is right, is, uh, is good. And so we're, we're interested in that. You know, I don't wouldn't say we joke about it, but but we thought we missed it because we weren't at the scale we are now. Um, and we thought we missed the generational buying opportunity. That was 08. I'm not I'm not convinced we don't see something like that again, at least in retail and, and hotels and a couple other areas coming out of this. But we are uh that's one thing. And then I don't know if this is contrarian or not, but the we do think the the mixing of uses is kind of the future of real estate. Um, more and more projects are becoming something with, you know, um, 
something with multiple phases and multiple uses, whether it's retail on the ground floor and apartments up top or, you know, seniors housing development with some retail out front or retail and storage. Um, it really doesn't matter, but all the municipalities seem to want to create density these days. And, uh, and just kind of the, the lines between, hey, I'm just a retail developer. I'm just a healthcare developer. I just do storage. We think those are all, all starting to blur across all asset classes. So you're going to have to maybe be more nimble in, in the world moving forward and kind of how you weave uses into a development and maybe not just be pigeonholed or as specialized as people of the past. I couldn't agree with you more. That's a great point. Yeah, no, it, it's it's all starting to kind of blend together and you've seen it. But like you said, everything, the trends are being accelerated by this. Uh, not necessarily something that's brand new, but just things that were already kind of starting to take shape or happening quicker. Man, this has been uh, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, I, re- I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's always fun to uh, to talk real estate to to do it all day, and the uh, you know everyone's got slightly different perspectives. So it's uh, we're trying, I guess, as an operator right now to be as transparent as we can to others because uh, we've been a maybe a historically kind of antiquated and guarded industry where uh, where data is hard to come by, and in this time, kind of. I think knowledge might be power, uh, but use an old adage there. And so we're, we're trying to be transparent. I was happy to, to talk and hear what others are experiencing because there really is no uh, no playbook for global pandemics. No, at this, least not one we've read. This has been awesome. And your sharing on Twitter and, and everything else has been great. And, and like you said, the best way to figure out what's really going on in a situation like this isn't Fox News or CNN or CNBC. It's it's talking to people that are on the ground experiencing it day by day. It's it's where I've gotten the best kind of knowledge to act on. So this is this is huge. All right. All well right, stay in touch, stay safe, and uh thank you again. This was this was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh in the meantime, let me know if there's anything I can do and uh look forward to uh Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.